you were here a year ago when we started 2006, we did a series uh, out of Malachi, but basically it was predicated on this reality that if you look at statistics taken with the United States recently, and for quite some time actually, the difference, the appreciable or discernible difference between the lives of people who call themselves Christians and those who, who say they are not Christians, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two statistically. In important areas, divorce, giving, etc., etc., the church in the United States and arguably in the West, that means Western Europe, Canada, etc., as well, looks pretty much like the world around us. And think of this. If there's not much difference between the church and the world, what incentive would people have for going to a church? If the church isn't offering something unique that they can't get in the larger world around them, what incentive is there to go to church? And by the way, going to church in my mind is a phrase, going to church is not inherently uh, beneficial. Going Going to church is not the goal, but it gets down to this issue about where's real life, where's real transformation. And the fact that the church looks like the world around it just reflects the truth that most Christians look like the world around them. That, that is, that those who name the name of Christ have not been transformed, that our lives aren't much different than anyone else we interact with. This is the issue. I want to suggest this morning that one of the key reasons that there is such a gross, such pervasive a failure within the church, and that means within your life and mine and others who call themselves by the name of Christ, failure to see this kind of life-altering transformation is that we fail to see God for who and what He is. Um, We're going to start a series this morning, a seven-week series, that's going to focus specifically on God. And it's... uh, if we can see, my, my thought is in the whole series, if we could see God a little bit more clearly, it would change us. It would change us. And there's some biblical rationale for this. Listen to this out of Job. If you know the Old Testament book of Job, you know that Job's a guy who pleases God. God approves of Job and Job's life. And, and Job knows God. But a series of catastrophes are allowed to occur in Job's life. And this begins a discussion between Job's friends and Job, and then God enters the picture in Job 38. And and Job has actually been accusing God of unfairly treating him. And in chapter 38, God comes in, he enters the discussion, and he basically tells Job the way it is. And this is what Job says at the end. In Job 42, 5, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job did know something about God. Job was approved by God, loved by God. But Job didn't know God the way he thought he did. And when God reveals more of himself to Job, Job is transformed. Job repents of what he was thinking, his wrong thoughts. He understands they're wrong now because he's seen more of God. And his life is changed because God has revealed more of himself to Job. And that's what I'm suggesting this morning and will for the next seven weeks. That's what we need. If, the, if Christians are going to be different from the world, if the church is going to be unique and be some life-giving reservoir, as it were, for the larger world around us, it'll be because we're transformed, because we have this life. And I'm arguing that this life comes from seeing God for who He is and what He is. This is a theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you read uh, Ephesians, it's kind of the, the deep waters. is one of the elements or areas of the New Testament that's deep waters. It's deep spiritual truth. 
And if you read that epistle, you see over and over again that Paul's bringing up this concept about knowledge and knowing things. And that if you really know things, it changes you from the inside out. So he's got two important prayers in Ephesians. One is in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 17. And he prays this for the Ephesian Christians. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? Paul says in chapter 1, may He give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. May you see things you didn't see before. And in verse 18, so that you will know, that you'll know things that you don't know already. In chapter 3, at verse 18, he prays, may that you may be able to comprehend, that is, you can understand, you can grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Paul isn't just saying that you may know your Bible, that you may memorize Bible verses, valuable as that is. You know, the Pharisees in Jesus' day and demons, James says, they know the Bible too. Satan can quote the Bible, and that's not what Paul's praying. His prayer is that there will be this personal, intimate, and I would argue submissive or humble acknowledgement of who God is and what He is. And this brings transformation. Not, I know something of someone, but I really know God. That's what Paul's talking about. If you remember in the movie or the story, The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy's in need, you know, she hears about this great God in Oz, right? The great and powerful Oz. So that if she can just get to the city, Oz will grant her petition and get her home. And so, you know, she and her friends, they come trembling into his presence and the flame is going and the head appears and And you know, and Oz the Great, the great and powerful Oz, this God of this world, commissions them to go out, you know, and you take care of this little little job for me and I'll answer all all your needs. And so they go out and they take care of the Wicked Witch of the West and they come back to the great and powerful Oz. And of course, you know, they find out, you know, that there's less to Oz than they thought because the great and powerful Oz is really not great and powerful. He's an old man behind a curtain. And, you know, for them, it's like, here was the promise and here's the reality. And I think for many of us, and certainly for many in the world around us, a God is not the great and powerful Oz. He's the old man behind the curtain. That is, there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of promise, but there's not much fulfillment. And I think God's out to blow that model for us and for the world around us, at least to some limited degree anyway. The God who made the heavens and the earth is not an old man behind a curtain. And He's the God we have to do with. So starting today and for the next seven weeks, this study is going to be about theology. And theology sounds like a boring word. Uh, Hopefully you won't feel that way uh, today or in the next seven weeks. But, uh, you know, you can use theology broadly and you mean almost anything about God, anything about the Bible, anything about spiritual issues in general. But we're talking about theology in the narrow sense. And so we're talking about the study of God Himself. Not study about numerous other things, but the study about God Himself. Theology comes from theos, which is God, and logos, which is word. So 
Words about God. That's what we want to look at. We want to be transformed by the knowledge of God. I've used, and I just tell you ahead of time, giving credit where credit is due, I've used quite a bit Norm Geisler's Systematic Theology. He's just finished his four-volume Systematic Theology. It's quite helpful. And I've used that extensively in preparing for this. Let me read you what Geisler says in the uh, opening section of his treatment on God. He says this, In our spiritual lives, we cannot transcend the God we worship. We can rise no higher than what we believe to be highest. Our concept of God will have a marked effect on our practical lives. Because worshipers become like the gods they worship, our godliness tends to become like our God. Our concept of God will, therefore, define the limits of our godliness. And I believe this is absolutely true. So when we look at the shallow lives we live, and when we look at the innocuous church around us, I think it's because we view a little shallow God. And so we live little shallow lives, and the church is a little shallow light because we don't see God for who and what He is. You know, Isaiah talks about this fact that humans tend to, in our own minds, we recreate God after our own image. You know, Genesis 1 says God created man in His image, and somebody's got the joke about man returned the favor. I think Lewis maybe said that. Man turned around, returned the favor, created God after our own image. So almost all of us come to the thought about who God is and what He's like. We've got preconceived notions about that. And of course, they're all deficient. They they don't reflect what's true, what's real. J.B. Phillips wrote a book years ago titled, Your God is Too Small. It's a very thin book. It's easy to read if you can ever get your hands on it. The first half of the book is just giving the parodies that we have of God. God's Santa Claus. God's the nice guy in the sky. God's the, the warm old man. It's all these deficient views that we tend to have of God. He goes through all that before the second half of the book. He tries to display or illustrate what God really is like. But all of us come to our sense of God or our knowledge or our thoughts about God with distorted views, with deficient views, with shallow views, because we tend to remake God in our own image. And if we look at God and what He said about Himself, hopefully we can fracture those idols and and break those idols and start fresh and see God for who and what He really is. I'll acknowledge, too, on the front end of this, um, you know, you're always limited by your source. So... uh, There is no way I can, because of my own limitations, do any justice to this at all. And, you know, you say you scratch the surface. My my thought is, uh, you know, Isaac Newton, I think, said, you know, he's this genius. He sees the world like nobody else does. He develops quantum mechanics, etc. But when he talks about his knowledge, he said he's like the little kid playing in the water on the edge of the ocean. That is, his grasp is of this little shallow pool around him but the great vast ocean lies in front of him. Well, that's exactly the way I feel. And my hope is just that we play in the shallows a little bit and that we see a little bit of what's over the horizon. If we can do that, this will be successful. This will be a good thing. The series title, by the way, is God Is, and then each week we'll say something about God. God is one thing or another. This week's is just simply God is. And by that I mean God is the one who is and was and always will be. God's the eternally existent one. That's where we're going to start. God is the ultimate reality, if you will. 
I'm going to flip through several scriptures as we go. You're free to follow along or listen. It doesn't matter. You know, when the Bible opens its pages, the first statement made supposes, presumes, assumes that God is. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. This tells us that before there was a heaven and earth, before there was a space-time continuum, God already existed. God is not part of this creation. He's not limited by this creation. Before the worlds began, before there was any matter at all, before God spoke and created, God was. The first statement of the Bible supposes God's eternality, that He had no beginning and that He'll have no end. In the beginning, it says God was, God is. If you're a young earther and you believe the earth is 6,000 years old, if you're an old earther and you believe it's 6 to 16 billion years old or if it's 60 billion years old, whatever your thought is about the time frame that the world or the universe inhabits, it's meaningless as far as God goes because God is not constrained by time. Time has no effect whatsoever on God. He lives, we could say, in an eternal now, something outside of time. Time exists within God but God's not constrained by time and He's not part of time as it were. When God tells us of the creation of the physical world in Genesis 1 and all of the opening of Genesis, He exists before it, He's outside of it, and He's independent of it. In the beginning there was God. In the beginning God, we could say simply, God is It's interesting that when John the Apostle writes about Jesus in his gospel, he trades on this same theme. So that when a Jew heard the opening line of John 1, he knew exactly what frame of reference John had. It was Genesis 1. So John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here the Word is Jesus. That's who he's talking about. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In John 1, John is telling Jews and readers today that the Jesus, the Word that he's talking about, is the same person as the God of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John tells us in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And Jesus, the Word, created the universe, just like Genesis 1. When Moses writes about God and creation in Genesis, he uses the term for God, Elohim. And then John names for us God in the flesh, the incarnate God, Jesus. It's the same person. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God. John says, in the beginning, Jesus. Same claim that Jesus claims, and John's claim for Jesus, he's the same as Elohim in Genesis 1, He created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is God. Jesus is. God is. Jesus is. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1. When he's talking about Christ, he says this in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. This doesn't mean that he himself is created. It means he's at the head of the beginning of all creation. It says, by Him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. These would be angels and demons. Generally, if you see these terms in Colossians or Ephesians, it refers to spirit beings, not humans. 
All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Paul says the same thing that John did about Jesus. That Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, and He is the one that created the heavens and the earth. And that Jesus as the Creator stands outside space and time. His existence doesn't depend on space and time. Makes no difference whatsoever. He who became the incarnate Word of God, God on earth, He's not limited, and He wasn't limited by a human body in His time here. He is before all and after all. He's God. I love the phrase, in Him all things hold together. If you think of the vast expanse of the universe, think of the images from the the Hubble Space Telescope. However you measure light years and the distance and the size of the universe, it says that in Christ all these things hold together. The universe exists within Him. Just like God in Genesis 1, John tells us, Paul tells us, Jesus is. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, Jesus. It's one and the same. If you remember back in Exodus 3, when God wants to redeem uh, Isaac's descendants, Jacob's descendants from Egypt, He's going to send down Moses, this former prince of Egypt, and he's up in the, up in the uh, Palestinian or Sinai area, and God says, Moses, he appears to him in the burning bush. I've got a job for you and I want you to go down and I want you to lead my people out of Egypt up into the land of promise. And so Moses interacts with him and besides some other things, he says this, Exodus 3.13, Lord, this is the way it is. I'm going to go to the sons of Israel and I'll say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses says, God, who shall I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, when God tells Moses what his name is, he says, I am the eternally existent one. The name I'm giving you to tell Israel is, I'm the one who always was, always is, always will be. I am eternal. I'm without time. I'm without constraint or reference to your world in time. I have no limitations. I'm the one that's always been. When you read in your Bible, uh, in your Old Testament, if you read the word Jehovah or Yahweh uh, or Lord, normally in uh, caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, normally that's the translation of Y-H-W-H, of the Hebrew Y-H-W-H, which we would pronounce Yahweh. And the, the term Yahweh is formed from I am who I am. The Hebrew consonants are filled in with vowels to get Yahweh, but that's the name of God, Yahweh, is the name He gave Moses here in Exodus 3. So you remember in the Old Testament especially, to some degree today too, but much less so, the name of a person or a place indicated something important about them. So when Moses says, what's your name? Who shall I tell them sent me? God says, I'm the one that is. I'm the one that always has been. I'm the one that always will be. I'm the eternally existent one. I am the ultimate reality. That's who's sending you. When God gives His name, He's saying, I am. That describes me. I'm unlike everyone and everything else. I have no beginning, no middle, and no end. I'm the eternally existent one. This so impressed Moses, this name and this thought, that when he sat down to write a song, you know, he was a songwriter too, he was a talented guy, wrote down a song that we call Psalm 90. And listen to what he says in Psalm 90. Still thinking, maybe, maybe thinking about the burning bush experience and what God said to him there. 
Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or You gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man back into dust. You say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in Your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or like a watch in the night. Moses, who lived to be a ripe old guy, I think it was 120 or whatever, Moses looks back and he says, compared to God, a man's life times 10 or 12 or 15, well, it's like a few hours in the night. It's like yesterday. You know, you look forward to something and it suddenly it gets here. Maybe you look forward to Christmas or New Year's or whatever. When it's past, what do you think? Gosh, it was here and it's gone. Well, that's what Moses says. God is so without time that he can look at a thousand years, the lifetime of 10 or 15 people, and it's like a blink. It's like it never happened. It's like Christmas supper. Look forward to it for a year. It's here and it's gone and it's over. He says, compared to God, that's what we're like. God's eternal. We're not. We're these little itty-bitty specks that exist in time for a moment. God's eternal. If you've been in the Sunday school class, you know we're going through another book by Norm Geisler, which is very helpful for me. And one of the things that he talks about is that we know that uh, God exists uh, totally outside of the Scriptures. We know just from logic and science, etc., we know that God exists and that God is eternal. <clears throat> the world you and I live in, we know, is not eternal because it changes. And one day is added to another so that time goes on. And And if time keeps flowing on, we know that there was a beginning. And so if there was a beginning, there's a beginner. That is, if the the space, the universe we inhabit, if it began, then someone created it because you can't get something from nothing. So there had to be a creator. And God's the one who says He is that creator. He, He brought in space and time through His being. It didn't exist before Him. But since we live in a, in a universe that's bounded in time, and it had to have a beginning, it had to have a beginner. And the God who wrote the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, claims to be that God standing outside of time who gave this universe its beginning. This, uh, this issue of the nature of God being uh, eternal has several things that flow from it, and I'm going to mention a few of these this morning. Um, that besides God's nature as being eternal, He has characteristics that flow from this. And one of these is that He's immutable. And simply to to be immutable just means that you can't change. You can't change. Uh, Sometimes we, we think things about God that we say God can do everything. But that's not actually true. God can't do many, many things because He can't do things that are contrary to who and what He is so that God couldn't not be God. God couldn't not exist. God has all power, which we'll talk about in a minute, but there's many things God can't do because they would be inconsistent with who and what He is. One of the things God can't do is He can't change. His eternal nature precludes Him changing. He's the same. Whatever He was before, He was. Whatever He was before, He is. And whatever He was, He will be. He's immutable. Time has absolutely no dent on God's character or on His nature. He can't change no matter what happens. I love this too. You know, sometimes if you're interacting with someone else, if you throw a tantrum in just the right way or if you slight them or insult them or injure them in just the right way, your hope is that they'll change their mind. 
and they'll do something different, you know, so that they'll do what you want them to do. Well, no matter how you or I insult God, it makes no difference. There's nothing you can say to God or think about Him or threaten Him with that can change Him. And nothing that happens on the earth changes God. Nothing. It doesn't matter what glories we raise as men, what wars occur, whatever happens in space and time, none of it has any change on God. He is immutable. He had no beginning and he'll have no end. One of the thoughts here is that change requires, or change and time are interrelated. You can't have change without time. But because God stands outside of time, he's not affected by time. God is immutable. There's nothing that can or does change him. Nothing in this universe exerts influence over him. Psalm 102 talks about this. The psalmist says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, that is the universe we inhabit, it will end, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, <clears throat> Excuse me. like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. You know, if you read science, you know that you talk about the expansion of the universe and one thing and another. We know that time marches on. But all these things mean it had a beginning and it lives for a while and it'll die. And The frame changes. You know, we live for a hundred years if we have, live a long life, which is not nothing, you know, in the age of the universe. But the universe will end too. You know, if it's expanding, that means it'll reach a climax if nothing changes. And then what it'll do? It'll come back in on itself and it'll end. And the psalmist says, all these things, the material world around us is going to wear out, but not you, Lord. You endure. You stay the same. This same immutability is attributed to Jesus Christ in Hebrews 13, 8, when it says Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus, like the God of the Old Testament described, He doesn't change. It doesn't matter when you look at Him. If it was before or now, or later, Jesus doesn't change. And in James 1.17, a verse that's noted about God being good and giving us good gifts, also says this, The Father of lights has no variation or shifting shadow. That is, there's not only no moral culpability in God, but there's no change, there's no variation in His substance or in who or what He is. Besides not changing, God is omniscient. That is, he knows everything. Uh, one of the interesting uh, ways God describes himself in the Old Testament is that he's the God who knows the future. So that if you read passages like Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 7 says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Or Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there's no other. I am God, and there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. If you think about this, if the universe exists within God, and if time exists within God's eternal now, then to God there's no difference between now and 10 minutes ago and 10 minutes from now or 10 years past or 10 years present. It's all the same to him. In his eternal moment, as it were, time exists. But the future is no different than the past. It's all there to him. So when God tells the future, it's as if he's looking at the newspaper you and I look at this morning 
or if he remembers an event in the past, so to speak. It's all the same. Because God's eternal, he contains time within himself. The future is no different than any other time. So he can, without error, tell you what's going to come because he's eternal and he knows all things. This is why he mocks idols, especially in Isaiah. And that's why his challenge, if you have a God, you believe God, then have your God tell you the future. Because he says one of the characters of God is, because he knows all things, he can tell you what will happen before it occurs. This is one of the strengths to the claims of deity related to Christ, because the Old Testament is so full of prophecies that describe Christ's coming and his life and his death and his resurrection. It's God telling us the future before it occurs. This is something God says validates his claims. And if you can find someone else who can tell the future accurately without error, then you could call them God. I heard a comedian the other day said he would start listening to astrologers or fortune readers when they win the lottery. This would be appropriate. If they can tell the future, listen to them. But that's what God says of himself. He knows everything. You know, sometimes you and I, uh, we fib, so to speak, to ourselves and others when we need something or want something or maybe we've been caught in something and we kind of try and shade things in a way that's really not true. But, you know, when you try and do that to God, it's like, give up. Why start? You're kidding yourself, but you're not kidding Him. He knows everything the way it really is. He really knows what you did. He really knows what you're thinking. And He really knows what you'll do. So all those promises you make to God that you know you'll break tomorrow or next week, God, He's not taken in by any of that because He knows everything. Out of His eternal now, time is nothing. It's all the same. It's all laid out in front of Him. He knows the future, the now, the past. It's all the same. God knows everything. God's also omnipotent. That just means he has all power. Um, <clears throat> you know, you can read statistics about the sun. Our sun is kind of this medium-sized star. You know, but if you read about how much energy there is in that one little medium-sized star, it's just mind-boggling. And if you think about this too, uh, your life uh, can't exist without the power of that star. You know, the, the sun, if the sun didn't exist, if we were in darkness, nothing would grow, there'd be no life, period. So, but for God, the power of this sun, it's, you know, it's nothing. It's like spitting, it's nothing. The, the power of 10,000 stars to God is nothing. You know, the universe, as big as it is, take the power of one star and multiply it times whatever. I don't know what our concept of the number of stars is. To God, it's nothing. He created this universe with His power. He spoke something out of nothing. And He could do the same thing again and again, and again, and again, because there's no limit to His power. No matter what power you can think of, to God it's nothing because He has all power. And the greatest power we can conceive of or think of to God, it's like, no big deal. When God chides Job in Job 38, just to try and help Job figure out who and what he is, he says this, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place?